Good morning, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the shepherds here at Fullerton Free. And uh, this morning we're picking up again in Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, as we've just read. And uh, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to pull out a piece of paper and a a pen or pencil and write down the word submit. That this idea is going to be the perspective or the filter with everything that we read next as we go into this passage. We're going to use this as the perspective of how to interpret it, of what Paul is talking about here. Now, I will tell you right off the bat that if I ask you to write down the word submit, that in the process, I know that some of you aren't doing it. You're just sitting there. You're not submitting. You are just going, yeah, he's not going to know. I'm at home. He doesn't know. This is the problem, is that at this point, when we talk about doing something, when we don't do it, that's not submission. That submission is literally doing that thing that is asked of us. So if you remember last week, as Dan was teaching, he, he talked about that, about being imitators of God. You know, that that's the first thing. And some of you were like, well, I'm still not going to do it. And then in verse 7 of 5, it stops and says, therefore, do not associate with them. So those of you who haven't written down the word submit, you're, you're gone. You're out of here. We're not going to associate with you anymore. And it, it gets worse. It just goes on and says, uh, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. So if you're not writing down the word submit, you're still in darkness. That's what that means. All right, well, let's jump in. Um, We're going to start off with verse 15, and this concept of submission is going to show up in every one of these verses. And this first part is, uh, it lays it out in a very simple way. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And this verse right here, that just simply carefully how you walk, I want you to understand that this idea of walking carefully, this is not because it's a, it's a minefield. Oftentimes when I teach, I will walk right up to the edge of the stage and I've had people say, gosh, you make me nervous when you do that. Be careful. This is not what it's talking about. It's not being careful like you're going to step on a landmine or something's going to happen bad. It's actually this concept of being careful is being specific. Luke uses the word when he writes his gospel to say, I want to be most accurate. I want to be purposeful about what I'm writing. And so this idea of being careful how you walk is walk with the purpose of which you've been created. Walk in a very accurate way, the way you are supposed to walk. That's what you want to do. So it's that concept that as we look at that very first verse, or the first verse of this passage in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. That this idea is, is that I've got a choice of the way I walk, and I know how I should walk, and I've got to be careful to walk just that way. Verse 16 goes on. Um, well, actually, before we get to 16, let me say this. This is the, the last of the seven walks that Paul uses here in Ephesians. And I'll run through them really quick. He's been using this phrase of walking, and it's not so much just walking, walking. It's the idea that it's how you live. Be careful how you live. And so in Ephesians 2, verse 2, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, or the way you once lived following the course of this world. And then in verse 10 of chapter two, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's why I say to walk in a specific way that you already know, it's because he's already said, this is a way prepared by God that you should walk in them. 
And then chapter 4, verse 1, the third walk. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That there's a specific calling on your life. You were created for good works. You've been called to those works. Walk in the manner worthy of that calling. And then in 4.17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then in 5.8, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. So when I say be careful how you walk in a specific manner with purpose, that being careful to walk that way is already laid out in, in these previous six ways that Paul has referred to uh, the walk or how we live. Now let's jump into, into verse 16. This idea of um, making the best use of the time because the days are evil um, oftentimes right now we talk about making the best use of my time as if it's some type of productivity moment. Like I have so many hours in my day. How do I set up my schedule today so I can be most productive? Can I multitask? Can I do different things? What if I do things in the morning versus other times? This isn't necessarily what it's talking about, about making the best use of the time. It's literally buying up the time. It's taking that. And time itself is the word karyos. It's, it's not chronos. Chronos is chronology. It's time in normal day, the moment, minute by minute. That's not what it's talking about in your normal minute by minute. It's talking about kairos. It's talking about this bigger sense of your purpose, of your fulfillment, of who you are. So that idea of buying up the reality of who you are and how God has made you, it's the idea of making the most of every opportunity. That in the sense of doing this, it's, it's that God has given you opportunities. He's made you for a purpose. He's created you for good works. He's called you. And now he says, therefore, make the most of every opportunity with who you are and what you're called to do. So Paul's laying this out again and again, and this idea of what he's doing, I would come back and say, remember that word I had you write down in the beginning, submit? This is an idea that it's not so much where you want to walk, and it's not so much doing all the things you want to do, it's already hinting that God is calling you to do something else, and he's asking you to submit to what he's calling you to do. So that submission is going to play itself out over and over. Um, when we look at uh, Ephesians 1, and where, if you've got your, your journals or your Bibles, just flip forward to Ephesians 1.9, I want to play out this concept of how strong uh, Paul is talking about this will of God here. Making um, this idea of that uh, we, in him we have redemption through his blood, that's verse 7, but he is, is talking about Christ making known to us the mystery of his will. He is trying to reveal his will according to his, his purpose, which he set forth as a plan. He already has a plan for the fullness of time to unite in all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That Paul is being really specific that God has already revealed his will. He's already said, this is what I've made you to be. I have equipped you to. I'm calling you to this thing. And now he wants you to make the most of every opportunity. Buy up every opportunity for you to do just that. That you would live out your life the way he created you and the way he's calling you. 
So very clearly, that's where Paul's going with this. And then as we jump down one more verse, so we're, we're hitting these one by one, it says, therefore, because of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I want you to, to catch this right off the bat, that this idea of understanding what the will of the Lord is, this is, this is implying that you can know it. If you're supposed to understand what the will of the Lord is, in fact, that's a commandment to understand the will of the Lord. That commandment says you should know the will of the Lord. So many times, uh, one of the common questions for somebody who works as a shepherd or when I worked at Hume, the question again and again was, how do I know the will of God? And literally, they're commanded to know that. So that's a good question. If you don't know the will of God for your life right now, that should become number one in one of your choices of going, what am I working on today? Understand the will of the Lord. Know how he's made you. Know what he's created you to be. Know what he's calling you to do with your life and live into that, into the will of God. This idea then, he takes in one more verse. We're gonna keep going through this is he uses as an illustration, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This idea then is what he's saying is, is the, be filled with the Spirit. Have God guide you. Have that be the fulfillment of what's happening is God's in you. Now, here's the thing, this debauchery, being drunk with wine. Are we gonna suddenly talk about alcohol? No, we're actually not. The point that he's making here is don't be drunk with wine for that is debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. So the contrast he's making is what wine does to us as opposed to the wine itself. In other words, if you're drunk, then this leads to debauchery. And the word here is actually this idea of being wasteful, of, of being reckless with your life. That don't be wasteful, that, that if, if debauchery is taking place, you're just living for your flesh, you're not living for your purpose, it's, the word is wasteful. Do not be wasteful with your life. Does this sound in conjunction to the idea that God has picked you to be a certain person, to do a certain thing? He has a will for you and he's saying, don't waste that, don't live with debauchery, don't live with recklessness, instead... Be filled or led by the Spirit. Be fulfilled by the Spirit. Have that live in you, that God would be the one driving you rather than your flesh because that would just be foolishness. That would be the unwise. Now, this, uh, a little over a week ago, um, my son, he lives up in the, the mountains in, uh, up by um, Lake Arrowhead, and he's got a, a little five-year-old boy and this little five-year-old boy, Indigo, they're out taking a walk in the woods. And as they're walking along, um, Indigo is fascinated by bugs. He loves insects. And so we have insect collections. And every time he comes to my house, he wants to see, see my, my bug collections, those kind of things. When they're walking in the woods, they want to find bugs. And so they start rolling over logs and they're looking under rocks. And at one point, they rolled over this really big log, and there's a beetle under there that, that is huge. And Indigo stops and says, holy Moses. And my son stops and looks at him and says, Indigo, where did you hear that? Holy Moses, where did you pick that up? And Indigo stops for a second, and he says, Jesus. As if Jesus had told him that phrase, or he heard Jesus use it. Now, that's a typical answer that a kid gives in that moment is like, what's the right answer? Jesus. But just for a moment, 
I want you to stop and think, what if that were true? What if it were actually true that one of the times Indigo is out walking in the woods, he's having a conversation with Jesus, that Jesus would actually be walking and talking about life with Indigo, and at some moments in time, Jesus sees something and says, holy Moses. Well, maybe, maybe that didn't happen. Maybe Indigo made it up. But here's the concept. Paul is not making this up. Paul is literally saying that just as if Jesus is walking with indigo and indigo can hear Jesus, Paul is saying you should understand the will of the Lord. You should be filled with the spirit. God should be speaking to you, talking to you. We act as if it's a strange thing that God would lead us. And yet Paul is telling us you should be led. Otherwise, it's foolishness. This passage is coming in and saying, therefore, if you know what God is calling you to do, then submit and do his will, not yours. That's why we write down the word submit. There's a point in time where we have to decide what is happening in our life on this matter. So as we go forward with this, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. I have to tell you one more thing about this particular verse. This verse at this point, you'll notice a comma at the end of 18. This is the beginning. Verse 18 is the beginning of a very long sentence. And I'm going to read the whole sentence so you can have a sense of everything that is wrapped up in this. He is not done with the thought. In fact, he is just introducing it. So at this point in 18, it says, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery or wastefulness, but be filled with the spirit, comma, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is all one sentence. It is all one idea. And it starts with this idea of being filled with the spirit. That the very first thing he's saying in this is be filled with the spirit. And then like Russian nesting dolls, he puts these ideas of what it means to be filled with the spirit. Here's an example of what happens when you're filled with the spirit. And he lists four things. We're going to go through those. And when we get to the fourth one, well, well, we'll talk about that. So when we go through this, the first one is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The second one is singing and making melody of the Lord with your heart. The third one is giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord. And then the fourth one is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in that one, like Russian nesting dolls, there are three more points that he makes. And we'll finish up the passage when we get to that one. But this idea of what's coming up in, in this entire thing is this long sentence of rushing nesting dolls is this idea that if you are filled with the Spirit, if you are being led by the Spirit, if he is actually directing you in this process, then what happens next are these things and these four things um, come out of this. Now, the first one is addressing. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, you have to, if you're thinking at all, if you're still there with us going through this passage, you have to stop and go, what does that mean? What does that mean? We're, that, that if we're filled with the Spirit, we just go around singing to each other all the time? Addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? That just sounds really weird. Good morning, Darren. I, I, I'm not even a singer. I can't sing. I don't even know. It's like, and if Darren started singing back to me, I would think that was really weird. 
This is a bizarre idea initially on the front of it. So I thought, I have no clue what that is saying. So I went to Christina, who, is the, who leads all of our worship, all of the music here. She is our, our chief musician here at the church. And I asked Christina, all right, Christina, this passage, you got to explain to me what it means. And she got real excited because if you're a musician, you know these verses. These are the verses you've read before. You love them. And so as we sat down and talked, she laid down a couple of ideas right off the bat. The first one she said is, what I love about this is, is that it's, it's the idea of just like the first one was the don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the spirit, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. She goes, when you're drunk, you lose all inhibitions. You just do whatever. You're not controlled by anything. You just let it go. And what happens here is this idea of singing is when you're caught up in worship, you're actually caught up by what the Spirit is doing in praise and worship. That comes out of you. We were created to praise the Lord. So the first thing is the inhibitions are lost with drunkenness, and now the inhibitions are actually driven by the Spirit of God himself. The second thing she said is truth is that psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are loaded and laden with truth. This is actually an issue for us at this church, is we want to make sure that we're selecting songs that we sing in worship that are valid theologically. There are discussions that go back and forth. Some of you even stop and go, gosh, can we talk about the theology of that song? That's a great thing because what we want to make sure is that what it's saying here is speak truth one to another. Sing those things. It's found in the Psalms. It's found in the hymns. And those are the things we're supposed to do together. As we talk, though, there was a third thing that came up in this possibility. And this is the idea that there's something else in this meaning. There's something else in music in general. And to get to this point, I want to play for you a soundtrack of crickets. This is from a a composer by the name of Jim Wilson. And I just want you to listen to crickets. If you're distracted or you could barely hear it, you might want to just turn it up and listen. lifespan than humans do. Their sounds are slowed down to the equivalent of a human lifespan. What you are hearing are the crickets only. No instruments or voices are added. Listen. Should you get this? We can hear the crickets quite clearly. There are two tracks. There's the regular cricket sound, and then there's this other one that sounds like a choir hear that? The melody going on? That is simply the sound of crickets singing slowed down. And at that point, the sound of crickets sounds like worship. It 
sounds like a choir singing praise. There's something sacred about this song that we're listening to. Now, here's the thing. It also sounds a little creepy, doesn't it? It's a weird sound. But is it possible that all of creation was created to praise his name? And when we hear crickets at night, that this is actually what the Lord is hearing is they sing, they sing praise to him. I don't know. Jim Wilson, the guy who recorded it, he says two, two tracks, no singing, no human voices. And we'll go ahead and take the crickets down. Well, no, leave them up for a second. Leave them up because I want you to do one more thing. Um, I went to Snopes. Snopes is a website that debunks things that are not true. And I went to Snopes to find out if this was really true. And after literally more than 20 years of trying to disprove this, they have simply come back and said, well, it's not proven. Normally, they like to say it's false, that it's not true. But they can't disprove it. They don't know exactly how he layered the song. But ultimately, if you slow down crickets, something like this happens. So they couldn't recreate it exactly this way, but they got it really close. And it depends on what kind of cricket, on what kind of temperature, and what you do. But the bottom line is this. Let's forget the song in the background. What I want you to hear are the real crickets singing. Do you hear that? Those crickets have all given up their own song. They've stopped doing whatever it is they want to do, and they've actually come in to the same rhythm with every other cricket out in the woods. That they have all submitted to this one song. We can go ahead and take down the crickets. This concept is what I believe Paul is referring to here. In fact, I went next into the worship team's meeting before this Sunday, and when they were talking about this Sunday, they didn't know where I was going with the passage. They didn't even know what I was there to do. And as I listened to them, they said, everything about music requires you to submit. It requires you to not just do whatever you want to do, but rather stop and play your part in the larger picture is to understand that God has laid out a plan and that our part is to do what we were made to do. And music, just like the crickets, is to align and have that one melody be played out. That's awesome. This concept of submission is what brings praise and glory to the Lord. By the way, it's actually this idea is the same thing that's in our mission statement, that we at Fullerton Free want to be united in sacrifice. When we use that phrase, that's what it means. And Darren even refers to future crickets. We would align it that way, that we are future crickets. And in other words, our hope set on him, we are united in sacrifice, that we give up all of our different voices for that one common voice that points towards God. It's almost ironic that one of the most divisive things in the church is actually music. When the very thing that music is about is about uniting and coming together as one and submitting. All right, verse 20. As we jump into this passage again, we've gotten the first one addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sorry, the second one is actually in 20. And making melody to the Lord with all your heart. So the first one is addressing one another. The second one is actually singing to the Lord. 
And we have purposely this morning put all of the worship towards the end of the service so that we can actually exercise and obey at least one command today. That one of our commands is to make melody to the Lord so you have a chance to be obedient later this morning when we sing together. But it literally is that, is to, to, to sing and make melody to the Lord with all of your heart. That worship is a command to us to praise him. Then verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This one's actually a tough one. Having a heart of gratitude initially sounds wonderful. That's a good thing. But always and for everything, the coronavirus, how many of you right now are always and for everything just thanking the Lord for what he's done in disrupting your life? How about what's going on culturally? Are you just grateful for that? Some ways maybe, in other ways not. You see that when we look at life, it's like, wait a minute, this is, it's wonderful to look at good things and go, I'm gonna praise the Lord for that, but it's far more difficult for the difficult things. This comes to Eugenie and I this week as um, we had spent some time with some people talking about somebody in, the, in their family who was wrestling with a meth addiction. And their choices had disrupted their life and was causing all kinds of pain. And the family didn't know what to do. So they reached out to us and we're having this conversation of the pain in that. And that meth addiction and everything that's happening, am I supposed to give thanks for, for that? Thank you, Lord, for that. And then even just a little bit later, the phone rings or a, a text comes in. And the text comes from a friend, a longtime friend. And the friend begins to talk about somebody in their family who has been hit physically with a, with a problem and they have children and it just seems like this isn't, this isn't good, what's happening to this family and, and the mom has just been devastated physically and what's going to happen to her kids, what's going to happen to her husband. So at this point, one of the family members texts Eugenie and says this, I'm interested and how you navigated your faith during the imminent loss of your son-in-law, that they, they understand that they may very well lose their family member. I'm interested in how you navigated your faith during the imminent loss of your son-in-law and the time following. I don't falter in my faith. I'm just looking for direction. And even when we have an avalanche of prayers about a specific issue, there's still no bed that's been opened for her for the right treatment. What the heck? This is a desperate text that comes out as somebody stops and says, my life is crumbling, my life is in, in disarray, and I don't understand what God is doing when all of us are praying. And at that point, a verse comes along and says, yeah, praise him. Give thanks to him always and for everything. And you know why? It's because God is working God has a plan in the middle of it. God is doing what he does, even when we don't see it. Even when we look at him, we're like, Lord, I don't really know what you're doing. Do you remember when we were in Habakkuk? Uh, let me say that differently. A while ago, we were in Habakkuk. I'm not going to try to make sure you remember anything. Um, but in Habakkuk 1.5, it says, look among the nations and see. This is God talking. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. That, that as Habakkuk was actually praying out to God about the injustice in his city, 
God stopped and said, oh, you wouldn't know what I'm doing. You wouldn't even understand it. You wouldn't believe it if I told you what I'm doing in, this, in the midst of this. This part of, of literally giving thanks to him and always and everything is submission. It is submission. If I'm going to praise him, then I have to submit what I think and know to what he thinks and knows. I have to stop and realize that God himself knows more than I am, is more powerful than I am, has already seen how it's going to play out. And I must submit that he is bigger and better and greater and, and gooder. That's not a word. He is more good than I will ever be. And submission is saying, God, I give you praise for the fact that you have this moment right now. Whatever you're going through, this verse says, praise him for it. Give him thanks always and in everything. Praise the Lord. That's hard. But that's what submission is. Submission is giving up your grasp on it to turn it around and to stop and say, Lord, I trust you. I submit to you. All right, we're coming to the end of those nesting dolls. Verse 21, submitting to one another. There's the word itself, just lest you think I'm making this up. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that we would do this one to another. But in this, in verse 21, Paul then gives another set of nesting dolls. He gives three examples of how to submit to one another. Because it's one thing to say, hey, you should submit to one another. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to submit to one another? So Paul goes on and gives three examples. He, he gives it in marriage, he gives it in family, and he gives it in the work situations. Wives, submit to your husbands, and then children, obey your parents, and then bond servants, obey your masters. So those three examples he lays out, and he says, submit to one another, and then he gives these examples. So we're going to jump into these examples really quick. And so this very first one, as it starts off, and I'm going to, for the guys, um, especially, you know, if your wife is right there, this is not a time for amens, all right? When it says, wives, obey your husbands, don't do it. Don't, don't say amen right there. That's not good. In fact, um, everybody pretty much knows this passage. In fact, when the teaching team um, heard this verse was coming up, they said, oh, Jeff, we're so sorry for you, um, simply because oftentimes it, it creates a tension about that. But if you look at the verse, it, or the verses, it literally lays it out in a concept that, that literally comes down to say what Paul just said, that you submit to one another. So let's look at it really quick. In verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And by the way, the as to the Lord shows up in all three examples, that you would do whatever you're doing as to the Lord, in the Lord, that this is your heart should be about serving him, not necessarily that person or that, that thing. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But husbands, listen to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you know what submission means? It means giving yourself up. This concept is wives submit to your husbands, husbands submit as unto the Lord. As the Lord gave up, the Lord submitted to his father. As the Lord did that, that's what we're to do. And the way the Lord did it, he died on the cross. 
He took nails in his hands. He took on everything. He took on the pain. He took on the sin. He literally submitted everything he was in his love for his bride. Husbands, that's what we're supposed to do. So literally, this example is played out this way, that wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, you too should be submitting to one another that way as it lays itself out. We're going to jump to verse, the first verse of chapter 6. Um, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is another one. And you have questions. Well, what if your parents aren't godly? What if your parents are asking you other things? And it's like, what if Scripture says, children, obey your parents in the Lord? What if it says you literally do these things, apart from it being something immoral that your parents are asking you to do, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. But very similar as the wives and husbands, there's a second half to this. And most people know the first part. They don't know the second part. And the second part in verse 4 comes up. In Ephesians 6, 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, as I was a parent and a dad, I would always focus on verse 4 of don't provoke your children to anger because I was pretty good at that. I knew how to push their buttons. I could drive them crazy pretty quick by my decisions. And I always looked at this passage and I thought, I'm not exactly sure, you know, how that provoking thing sits. And it wasn't until I'm looking at it and to see the rest of that verse that it shows up as submission. Look right after that in verse four. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Not of your will, but of his will. That sounds almost like something Jesus would say. But it says in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, you as a dad shouldn't be driving with your curriculum, with your idea of how to raise your children. You should actually be going to the Lord and submitting to him to say, what is it that I should do in raising my children? God should be leading you in that, not what you think you should do as a dad. We as dads think we got it all figured out. We're ready to espouse wisdom to our children. And here, God is simply saying, no, actually, let me tell you what to do with your children. Let me actually give you that instruction and that discipline and how to do it. That means we as parents need to submit as well. So we set aside our desires and wills and instead pick up his. So the submission shows up again, even there. And then finally, in verse five, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Now, before we jump into this one, let me say this right off the bat. Some of you, if you're using a newer ESV or the journal, it doesn't say slaves right there. I read, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Yours reads bondservants. The word is the same. It comes from the Greek word doulos. And I don't know if the translators were trying to soften the word slavery, but I almost think they shouldn't have. I almost think they should have left slavery right there because what Paul means is slavery, slaves. It's an uncomfortable word that you might be enslaved and your answer in this unjust situation, your answer is to obey your master. Paul gets it. We look at slavery now in one perspective, but you have to understand slavery was far more rampant and far more immoral back then. 
And he uses this illustration in that difficult time. And he stops and says, even in that time, slaves, obey your masters. This idea of what Paul is doing, Paul himself refers to himself as a slave in some of his letters. And, and so does James when he writes, it's James, a, a slave or bondservant, the word doulos um, of the Lord. And then so does Peter and so does Jude. And Jude, by the way, is actually the brother of Jesus. At a time he doesn't even believe Jesus is who he says he is. He thinks he's crazy. He grew up with him. But that all switches around once he realizes who Christ is. He switches from calling himself, he doesn't say Jude, the brother of Christ. He says Jude, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus. That he literally stops and puts himself in that perspective. And Paul says it in Corinthians, in in both chapter 6 and 7, he says, you are not your own. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. That he says all of us as believers should see ourselves as slaves. That we're not our own. That we literally are here to obey our master. Now, here's the thing. As we look at this passage, we've done this with the wives, husbands, the children, the parents. That there's, there's submitting on both sides. Where did the master part come in? Look at verse 9. Masters do the same. Masters do the same to them. Do what? What is it that the same? And that's in verse 7. So slaves... You're supposed to obey your masters, um, do it. This, this whole idea is servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Render service with a good will, with a good heart, to bring about good, to seek. If you, you think of Jeremiah 29, 7, that says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. That's slavery. They went into exile and it says, what did he want them to do? Seek the welfare of that city that enslaved them. He literally is saying, render service with goodwill. Bring welfare, bring goodness to your master. That blows our mind. We want rebellion. And he stops and says, I want submission. I want you, even in that role, to do submission the way I have done submission. You see, all of these examples and all of these verses are here to point towards the will of God. Understand what the will of God is. The will of God was to send his son to die for us. And Jesus stopped and said again and again, I am here to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus himself had to submit himself. And in submitting himself... He delivered the gospel, the good news. He redeemed us. He brought grace and love and mercy and forgiveness to us because of submission. This act of submission is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel that can be there. It is the idea that Jesus himself submitted his will, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus gave up his will for all of us. For the Father, so that the gospel could be lived out. Then Paul writes and says, Then you should submit, so that how you live your life in your marriage, submit to one another. In your church, submit to one another. How you sing, submit to one another. As parents and children in your family, submit to one another. In the work scenario, how you submit to one another. Whether you're the slave, whether you're the master, you are both to render service to one another in goodwill. This is a clear picture of the gospel, and Paul lays it out just that way. 
Now, finally, I have to stop and say, how do we find ourselves in this cultural moment of what's happening with race in our country? Do we get a passage on slavery? And Darren has said before, he prayed a long time ago about the verses and the passages we would cover, and we come to this passage and there's slavery. It would be wrong of us to just simply walk past that and not even address where we're at right now. So I want to tell you that even as we read this, there are some concepts that come with it. And this idea of what's going on in our cultural moment is I want to come back to the fact that it sits just right in the middle of this passage that you were created for a purpose, for good works. And he's asking you to submit, to know the will of God and how you use the gifts he's given you, how he's made you, that you would do those for things that are good, right, and true. You would live out your life that way for you were created for good works. But here's the challenge. I don't know about you, but I watch family members and friends who have been instructed by Instagram, by Facebook, by CNN, by Fox. I don't care on what side of the issue you stand, where you're at on this entire thing. The problem is, is too many times we allow culture to drive us. We allow what's happening in the news to excite us or to get us all frustrated or wrapped up on something. When everything about this passage just said, understand what the will of the Lord is. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be clear about where you're walking. Do it on purpose because that's what God called you to do. One of the things I love about this church is that many in this church and the church in general has already determined that God has placed a calling on us in this community for all good, for, for to live out the gospel in this community. And that means on issues of injustice. So we have people in this church who are fighting for the cause of, of, of battling human trafficking, who are addressing homelessness, who are addressing foster care, who are addressing addiction, who are addressing poverty, who are, we just can go on and on. People in prison, we have teams of people who are visiting people in prison because we care. Why do we care? Because God's grabbed a hold of them and whispered into their heart what he wants them to do. Every one of us, God has created us for a purpose. You should be about something. The number one thing Paul's laying out here is you should be about the gospel. But as you live it out, things like slavery and injustice are something that we should address. Those are things that we shouldn't just let drift by. But let me also remind you of a story. Moses, when he saw what was happening to the Israelites in Egypt... He went up, he saw the slave driver beating one of his, his, his nation, and he killed him. He acted out to address an injustice. And do you know what God did with him? He sent him out to pastor for 40 days because at that point, Moses was responding to the emotions of the moment, not to what God was calling him to do. And it was another 40 years later until God stopped and said, okay, now... And now Moses, after literally leading sheep in the wilderness for 40, day, 40 years, had humbled himself, had submitted himself to God, and said, all right, God, I'm yours. And then God set about a plan to correct the injustices. This is how it works. The submitting that we must do should be first and foremost always to the Lord. There's a lot of rhetoric going around today. Some of a good, some of a bad, how do you know? 
Well, the number one thing is you should be listening to the spirit of the living God. For every other passage here stops and says, look carefully then how you walk, not as the unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. If you're uniquely created to do good, and that's what Ephesians says, you were created for good works, then you should be about something. I'm not talking about social justice. I'm talking about obedience. I'm talking about submission. If you don't know what it is and you're not active on something, that's worse than both. That's simply you hear the voice of God and you turn it down as if you don't want to respond to God when he calls you to obey. Submission is something we all must do. But this idea of walking carefully, if we don't do it, therefore do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. If you don't do it, you're a fool. Scripture is very clear on that. I don't want to call you a fool. I want to call us each to obedience to do as Paul is doing in this. Submit to one another. Submit to the Lord. Submit. Literally, let God have, his, have your life. Let him drive your actions. Let him guide you through these difficult days, these days that are evil, as it says in the passage. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that even as we look at your word, we find truth that it just pours out of it for every day, including today. And Lord, I would ask that as we go into a time of worship, you would indeed find us in a moment of submission. Lord, that we, we may find a song that we don't necessarily like, but you've asked us to sing. You've asked us to praise you. Lord, we may be going through a difficult time and we, and we don't want to thank you for what we're in right now. But Lord, teach us to submit, to be able to, to lean into your will, that you have a plan and that you are working it out. And Lord, that through all of this, we might find that you would do great and wonderful things that would point towards your gospel, that would point towards your good news, because your plan is bigger and already so much better than ours. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you for your grace. We ask these things in your name. Amen.